To introduce our lesson today, I want to show you a, a man and his family here. And I don't expect you to know who this is and, and um, maybe not even aware of this particular event. But this man is an unusual man uh, because of something that happened to him. Uh, not too long ago, this man won the lottery up in New York. And you can see uh, what his name is there, Marvin Rosales uh, uh, Martinez, and he won a million dollars in the New York lottery. Now let me go ahead and make a disclaimer here. I'm not showing you this to promote the lottery. Uh, the, playing the lottery is a very foolish thing. It's often been times been called the poor man's tax because some of the poorest people uh, spend the most money in order to try to win. And uh, the odds of you winning the lottery are, are greater than you being hit by lightning five different times. And so to play the lottery is a very foolish waste of money, and I'm not promoting that at all. The only reason, Ryan, reason why I'm bringing up Marvin in this particular lesson is because of how Marvin won the lottery. It's a very unusual story, and you can go and, and research if you want. There's some articles in the papers about this. But the way Marvin won the lottery was not because he went to a convenience store or some other place and bought a lottery ticket. The way he won the lottery was he was raking his front yard. He was raking the leaves in his front yard, and as he was raking the leaves in his front yard, he noticed a piece of paper in the leaves. And the piece of paper was kind of crumbled up, and of course it was extremely damp because the, wets, the leaves were wet. And as he reached down to see what it was, he unfurled it or uncurled it and realized it was a lottery ticket. And he really didn't think much about it, but he put it in his pocket and he went inside the house and lo and behold, that ticket he found in those wet leaves was the winner of a million dollars. Now, there's no reason for Marvin to lie. There's no reason why his uh, family uh, gave any reason why he wouldn't play the lottery normally or that type of thing. But the reason why I bring him up this morning is can you imagine making such a discovery? Uh, can you imagine just raking in your yard and, and, and going about your business and you see um, a piece of paper and some leaves and all of a sudden that piece of paper is worth a million dollars? What a discovery. Another man down in Florida was walking across a parking lot and saw a piece of paper on the ground and picked it up, and it was a lottery ticket that was worth $318 million. Once again, what a discovery. Or maybe perhaps you were going into a um, yard sale, and you start looking at the yard sale, and you come across a ring, and you look at the ring, and you say, this is interesting, and you go to take it to someone to appraise it, and you look at it, and they look at it and say, well, this ring is worth over $500,000. That actually has happened. Or someone find a piece of art up in their, in their attic, and they look at that piece of art, and they discover that it's a classic that somebody has been searching for, and it's worth over a million dollars. Or someone going through some papers and discover a, a letter that was written by Abraham Lincoln that nobody had ever seen before. And its value cannot even be estimated. 
Think of all those different discoveries and think about the impact it had on their lives and think about how the great fortune came to them because of a, a, a discovery that just happened. Well, this morning, folks, we're going to be talking about perhaps one of the greatest discoveries of all, a greater treasure, more important than any of these things that we've talked about and certainly more important than winning the lottery. Because this morning, folks, we're going to be talking about the Bible lost and found. And I invite you this morning, if you will, to open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I appreciate Fred reading the end of this particular chapter because it shows us the result of what happened when you have the story of the Bible lost and found. We're going to be looking at the text this morning and we're going to... Uh, talk about when the Bible was lost and found and how it relates to us today living in this present day and age. So I hope you open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and I'm going to begin reading there at verse 1 and we're going to go through this lengthy reading. There's some places I'm going to skip but I think it's important that we set the background for what we're going to be talking about today. Chapter 34 and verse 1 begins... By telling us Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. Josiah, of course, was the next king of the nation of Judah, and uh, because he was the the heir or the son of uh, King Manasseh, he was the next in line even though he was eight years old, and I'm sure he had some help reigning when he was eight years old. But notice what it says now in verse 2. And he did right, or he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. This king, King Josiah, was a king that was a good king as far as the king of Judah was concerned. He was someone who wanted to do right in the sight of the Lord. It talks about how he followed after the ways of his ancestor David, who, of course, was someone who was a, God, who was a man after God's own heart. And it makes the point that we always need to have in life, that this was a king who was very balanced in life. He did not go to one extreme or the other. He did not go too far in the conservative vent, and he did not go too far in the liberal vent. He was very balanced in his rule and in his following of God. And it tells us why he has this particular definition of his rule. Because it says in verse 3, For in the eighth year of his reign, that means when he was 16, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And the text, of course, tells us that this was a time evidently that 16 was the age that he was old enough and man enough to actually start reigning. There's a couple things I want us to think about before we move on here. First of all, I think this is a good admonition to our young people that it's never too young to start seeking after God. It's never too um, young to start having God reign in your lives. Here was a man who was 16 years old. He was king of all Judah, yet he understood how important it was to follow after God. But here's the second thing that's interesting about Josiah. Here is a man who is sandwiched, who is bookmarked by two of the most evil kings that Judah has ever had. His father was a terrible, evil king. His son was a terrible, 
evil king. But for some reason, Josiah was the man who was going to try to make Judah God's people once again. And this reign began here at 16 years of age. But going on in verse 3, it says, And only after 16 did he begin to seek after the God of, father, uh, the God of David his father. It says, In the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. When he turned 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. That shows you how terrible Judah had begun that all these different idol worship places began. But the text continues. And they break down the altars of Balaam in, in his presence and the images that were on high above them and cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He break them in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. He burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And, he, and so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto, unto Naphtali, at that thermatics round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Jerusalem, he, or land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. This was a man who was interested in purging idolatry out of his kingdom. He wanted his people to return to God. But now we get to what I really want us to think about this morning after we have this background. It says in verse 8, Now in the 18th year of his reign, this means when he was 26 years old, when he had purged the land, it says at the end of verse 8 that he had made the decision to repair the house of the Lord his God. I want you to visualize in your mind for a moment what was going on here. Think about the temple that Solomon had built. Think about how the Bible describes Solomon's temple, this grand place that David had made plans for, but then his son Solomon had built this temple. Think about what a glorious place it was and how it was supposed to be a worship place of God. But because of all the idolatry that had taken place before Josiah was king, this temple had been fallen down, broken down, and it wasn't even being used anymore. Idolatry had so taken over the land that now King Josiah says, I purged the land of idols. We need to get people back into the house of God. And before we can do that, we have got to make repairs to it. We have got to get it in its right, in, right place again so people can come and worship it. And so verse 9 says, And when they came to Hilkiah the high priest and delivered the money. In other words, the money was gathered to make the repairs. Verse 10 talks about the workmen that were put in there. At at the end of verse 10, it says to repair and amend the house. But then I want you to drop all the way down to verse 14. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book. Found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. During the repair of the temple, a book was discovered. That book was their Bible. That book was the law of Moses. That was the book that they followed as far as serving God. 
And verse 16 says, And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was commanded to thy servants, they do it. And verse 19 says, And when it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And then verse 21, it says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. Folks, when I look at this particular text, it's amazing to me what is transpiring here. It's amazing to me how that this event in history is perhaps one of the greatest events that mankind had ever seen. Because as I look at this particular event, it reminds me of something very, very important. I want you to consider something this morning. First of all, I want you to consider the fact the marvelous, amazing providence of God in preserving the Bible through the centuries. Does it not amaze you? Does it not overwhelm you? Does it not just boggle the mind? When you think about the fact that I am able to hold in my hand, you are able to hold in your hand, either in a bound form like this, or perhaps digitally on your phone, or some other iPad or that type of thing, that we are able to look at and read something that was written over 4,000 years ago. That was written by Moses. That was written by King David. That was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Or even think about the fact that it was something that was written by the apostles, and we have the very words of Jesus Christ. And here in the year 2018, we still have in our hands something that was written so long ago. And then when you think about that, and you think about how all these years have passed, and think about how all the different things that had happened to the world down through the centuries, and yet somehow... God, through His providence, has before us today His still Word. Now, as you think about this, just think about the fact of what's happening right here in the text. I want you to use your imagination here just for a moment and see if you can picture what's happening here. Here, this book of the law that they discovered in the temple was more than likely a handwritten book paper scroll, a handwritten paper scroll. Uh, there was no printing presses, but more importantly, there was no pressing concern to even keep this particular book of the law. The nation of Israel was, was living in idolatry and nobody cared about the word of God, but, but still use your imagination and think about this for a moment. How in the world did this scroll end up where it, where it was found? Think about how as idolatry began to sweep, sweep through the nation and how that the temple became something that was run down and torn down and forgotten and not used. And how maybe things began to be carried out of it. Maybe different scrolls were carried out of it. And how in the world did somebody, whoever that person was, was it a priest? Was it a worshiper? 
Was it somebody who took care of the building as far as the maintenance was concerned? Who in the world thought in their mind, well, I have here in my hand the law of God, the word of Moses. This may be the last copy of this thing that exists. This may be the one and only copy of God's word that exists today. And what should I do with it? And he finds some way to hide it. He finds some cubbyhole to stick it in. He puts it under something. And time begins to tick. Day after day, month after month, year after year, that book begins to be covered up with dust. That scroll begins to be covered up. And everybody forgets about it. But then, we don't know how it happened because the Bible doesn't tell us. But think about this. They go into the temple and they begin cleaning up the temple, begin repairing it. They begin patching up the holes in the wall. They begin to replace the stone. They begin to do things to make this building beautiful again. And maybe it was a workman. The high priest is named, but it may have been someone brought it to him. But this workman is working and he's beginning to patch up a hole. And he, as he's beginning to patch up a hole in one of the walls of the temple there, and once again this is conjecture, but we're using our imagination He comes to one hole and he looks in that hole and he says, it looks like there's something in there. And he reaches in and he pulls out what might have been the last copy of God's word that existed on the face of the earth. By any every indication in the text and by the reaction of the king, by the reaction of everybody else in the story, it's like no one has ever seen this in forever. And so they were amazed by the discovery of it what might have been the last copy of their known Bible was discovered. Now folks, when I think about that and I imagine that scene in my mind, it boggles my mind, but it also makes me think about the amazing, marvelous providence of God and preserving the Bible through the centuries. Over in the book of Jeremiah, we have the story about King Jehoiakim who in Jeremiah chapter 36, Jeremiah brought him the word of God. And Jehoiakim, who was a terrible king, did not want to follow God's words. You know what he did? He took that particular copy of God's word and he took a penknife and he cut it up into little bitty pieces. And then he burned the word of God there on the altar in an effort to perhaps say, if this book is gone, I don't have to follow it. If I destroy this book, then nobody has to live by it. But you know what God did? He went to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I'm going to tell you what to say and I'm going to repeat this book again word for word and I want you to go back and give it to the king. God's making sure that his word is preserved regardless of the circumstances. For those of you who are study, enjoy the study of church history, you may remember this particular emperor of Rome right here. His name is Diocletian. And maybe you remember when we talked about in church history how Diocletian, who was such a persecutor of Christians, that in 303 A.D. he decided that he was going to find every Bible that was in the known world and he was going to burn every single one of them. He understood that, that Christians were people of the Word and somehow or another, if you could get rid of the Word, then Christianity would cease to exist. He was tired of just simply killing Christians because no matter how many he killed, they seemed to keep coming back more and more. 
But he knew if he got rid of God's Word, if he got rid of the Bible, then that would put an end to Christianity. So he searched all through the land and arrested and found as many people that had Bibles and took their Bibles and burned them. In fact, he was so sure that he had destroyed all the Bibles that he raised a monument to himself saying he is the one who destroyed Christianity. But folks, Diocletian has been dead and gone for many hundreds of years, but yet I can look right over there and I can still see the Bible that he tried to destroy. There was a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. And this French philosopher was someone who promoted human philosophy. And he was so sure that his teachings and the teachings of other philosophers would be something that would soon take over the world, that there would be no need for religion, and there most certainly would be no need for a Bible. And so he even made the statement. He says, 100 years from now... There will not be a Bible on earth. But ironically today, the very room where he wrote those words is now a storehouse of Bibles for the American Bible Society. My point in all this is, dear folks, is the fact that there is the amazing providence of God That no matter what man has done, no matter how much time has passed, no matter what happens in this world with all its turmoil and all the things that happen, God has made sure that I'm able to hold in my hand and you're able to hold in your hand the wonderful words of God. I can open up this book and I can read the same words that people have read centuries and thousands of years before me. I can hear the same truth that they heard, and I can obey the same gospel that was preached by the first century church. When you think about the fact that this book has been preserved through evil kings, through evil countries, through evil circumstances, but yet I still can have this book in my hand. That, to me, is the most amazing thing. Maybe we take it for granted because we have so many copies of it now. But back in Josiah's day, the emphasis is here in the text that there was only one copy. And through the providence of God, as they were cleaning out that temple, that one book was discovered. And because of that one book being discovered, we hold in our hands today the precious Word of God. Well, that thought in mind, think about this. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. When you think about the amazing wonderful providence of God in preserving our Bibles. This word, this section of Scripture takes on even more meaning when you think about the fact God's going to make sure that His Word endureth forever. But think about this. Consider the tragedy of the Bible lost. In Josiah's day, The Bible was lost, and because the Bible was lost, there was uh, 
a great tragedy taking place in the, in the kingdom of Judah. Beginning of our text, we read how that when Josiah became king and he decided to serve God, the very first thing he understood he had to do, even without any guidance, was he had to get rid of the idols. He had to get rid of the fact that there were people who were worshiping false gods. And then when he finally got the word of God, when it was finally brought to him and someone read it to him, um, the implication is that he wanted to hear what God had to say to him. And he realized how far the nation of Israel and Judah had fallen. The text says that he rent his clothes because he knew they weren't following the word of God. He knew that they deserved the right to, to be punished. But folks, what's even more tragic today When you think about the fact there was just that one book, just that one book and it was discovered and it caused a great revival there in the land of Judah. And you think about the fact that there was just that one book, but we live in a day and age now where Bibles are so numerous that even in some households we have more than one copy. I have maybe 25 different copies of of the Bible. But yet we live in a nation where very few people read it, very few people study it, very few people believe it, and therefore very few people obey it. God's Word is tragic when people don't don't obey it or believe it or read it. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 2 reminds us that we should be with those who are blessed because our delight is in the Word of the Lord. And we doth meditate upon it night and day or day and night. We're living in a day and age now where there are people who know less about the Bible than perhaps any other time. Oh, they may have a few verses that they remember. They may have a few verses that are important to them. But as far as people actually taking the time to really study God's Word and really spend time dwelling on the things that are therein, people who don't realize what a precious, precious book this is, they were missing out on something that is so very important. Which brings us to this next point, and that is consider the treasure of the Bible found. As I said, when Josiah and his people found that one copy of the Bible, it caused a great revival in that land. And of course, the point we can make this morning is, if we will rediscover this book and realize how precious it is, we will understand and appreciate that it can cause a revival within us, within our families, and within the church. You may not realize it, folks, but when you hold this in your hand, whether it be in bound form or in digital form, You hold in your hand the greatest treasure the world has ever seen. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 19 and verse 10, he says that this is a treasure that we need to hang on to that's greater than any gold in the world. Here are found words that are sweeter than honey, even the honey of the honeycomb. The point of the psalmist is that this is the greatest thing that mankind will ever have the greatest thing that we will ever possess. And we need to treat it as a treasure. Obviously, it was a treasure to God because He, through His providence, has preserved this book for us even now. Contained within this book is the truth that will make you free. 
Jesus reminds us in John chapter 8 and verse 32 concerning the words that are in this book. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We are reminded also in this book in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that right here is where we're going to find the gospel. Here is the power of the gospel found in these words. And Jesus also reminds us in John 17 and verse 17 that within this book there are words that will sanctify us, that will put us in a right relationship with God, to sanctify us so that we can have a relationship with God. Once again, we should be amazed by the fact that we're able to hold into our hands the very words that will take us to heaven, the very words that will bring salvation to us. Notice how the writer of Hebrews described this particular book and what a treasure it is. He says, for the word of God is quick, or other words, it is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Folks, the writer of Hebrews there is telling us what a marvelous, wonderful book that is. How that it's not a dead book. It's not just words on a paper. But instead, it is a book that is fully alive. It is a book that is breathing because it is a book that has within it God's breath. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 reminds us that all Scripture is inspired by God or literally breathed into by God. It is a breathing, living book because it contains within it the breath of God. And because it is the breath of God, it is a powerful book. It's a powerful book because it is sharper than any two-edged sword because it can go to the very heart of what mankind's need what mankind needs, and the very heart of what we need. It is a book that causes us to concern, discern our thoughts and in the, the intents of our heart. Is it no wonder that the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where he says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Folks, every single time we pick up this book, every single time we open up its pages, every single time we read the words that are written here, there should be some things that just strike to our hearts. And the first thing is the fact that God, through His providence, through His amazing, wonderful providence, has preserved His Word for us, through all these centuries, maybe even in the days of Josiah going back to the one final copy that was left. But yet from that one copy, this still is the best-selling book in the history of the world. But think about the tragedy of the Bible lost. If you have a Bible in your house and you never open it and never reading it, and it's just gathering dust, if you spend no time in it trying to discover the things that are in here, then it's very tragic because that Bible is lost to you. But think about the wonderful treasure of the Bible found. The thing that always amazes me about this book, and you've heard me say this before, is no matter how much I study it, 
no matter how many times I read it, if I take the time to really study and look at his verses, I always discover something new. This book is so amazing that someone with a sixth grade education can discover enough information here, enough words to teach them what they need to do to become a Christian. But then the greatest scholars of the world can study this book every single day for hours and still not uncover all the treasures that are located in this book. What a precious, precious treasure God has given us. So I guess as we close this morning, the question is is for you, what about your Bible? Is your Bible lost? If it is, folks, that's a tragedy. But if you have found God's Word and you've put it into your lives and you're spending time studying it and reading it, then, folks, you have the greatest treasure you could ever have. There's a need this morning to become a Christian. We want to take some time to show you in God's Word what you need to do in order to become a Christian. You'll kindly respond. I'll be glad to sit down and study with you and show you what the Bible says because that's what we need to follow. We need to follow the treasures in this Bible. Or if you have some other need, we can help you with this morning as far as praying for you, encouraging you, or building you up. We certainly want you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.